I mentioned to you yesterday, last night, that the common antidote for all five hindrances is a noble friend and noble conversations. The Buddha had a lot to say about good friends. In one of the very famous discourses, it's called the Ma Mangala Sutta, the discourse of the great blessings, it starts out with, not with fools associating, only with the wise consorting. There are 38 blessings in this particular discourse, and this is the first one. Now, a fool in Pali is Bala, which also means child. So, an immature person, a person who hasn't grown in spiritually, which is more what is meant rather than somebody who hasn't learned anything. One time Ananda, who was the Buddha's cousin and also his attendant for 25 years, totally devoted to the Buddha, said to the Buddha, Sir, a good friend is half of the holy life. And the Buddha said, Do not say so, Ananda. A good friend is the whole of the holy life. This is a very interesting statement because it means that we really need to be very concerned about who we associate with. Now, the Buddha also explained in detail what a good friend is. He also explained in equal detail what a bad friend is. Now, obviously, we have two directions here. One is to find the right kind of people to associate with, and the other one is to be a good friend. And it is far easier to find a good friend if we are also willing to be a good friend. In fact, I would say that one will not happen without the other. So when we hear what the Buddha has to say about a good friend, we can internalize that in such a way that we might be able to follow this as a guideline. Not only is it the whole of the holy life, but it is the common antidote for these obstructions that are within us the obstructions which are called the five hindrances and which, as I explained to you last night, have an automatic purification system in the meditative absorption. But that isn't enough. The day has 24 hours, as we very well know, and uh, you just check up for a moment how many hours of those 24 you could possibly meditate and use those five factors of meditation. 
if all goes well, shall we say one hour or more? Two? Well, that still leaves 22. So we sleep, what, six? Some people sleep seven hours. So out of 22, we're left with 15 hours. So if in those 15 hours we don't do something about the spiritual practice, the Dhamma teaching, that one or two hours on the pillow isn't going to do it. On the contrary, it might be, if all goes well, a bit of a mental relaxation, which is fine. But it's not going to be spiritual growth. So we need to support those five factors of meditation, which are an automatic purification system, with our daily life, with being attentive to what we do there. Now, the kind of association that we have has an enormous influence on us. The influence comes from the fact that if we are surrounded by people who try to take the easy way out or are committed to a hedonistic lifestyle, it would be impossible not to join in. Our natural tendencies go in that direction. And since we are also committed to being natural, we should, of course, follow this through with a vengeance. The mind is a magician. It can justify anything. It has been known to justify mass murder many times in our lifetime. So if we can justify mass murder, how much easier it is to justify hedonistic lifestyle. I mean, there's nothing to that. Anybody can do it. So we need to be discriminating in our associations. This discrimination is not to imply that we start disliking those whom we do not wish to associate with. It is strictly a matter of protecting oneself, protecting one's own inner happiness, protecting one's inner peacefulness, protecting the possibilities of meditation and spiritual emancipation through having no contact with much disturbance, abuse, and ill direction. It's only common sense. If we don't use our common sense for our spiritual path, it's not going to work because a spiritual path is exactly the same as living. And if we don't use common sense for everyday living, that doesn't work either. So with that in mind, 
we can have a look at what the Buddha said about a good friend. He mentioned ten qualities in a good friend, which are important because they will help us and support us in the practice, but also help us to refrain from evil. Now, a good friend should always be someone who helps us to refrain from evildoing. All of us can be tempted. It can't happen here is a myth. It can happen anywhere. Human nature is such that it has all the possibilities and we must accept the fact within ourselves that we have the ability for the greatest evil and the greatest good. We're usually keeping ourselves in the middle somewhere, sometimes a little below the middle and sometimes a little above the middle. And why is that? The Buddha said, because out of fear and shame, hiri otapa. And he said those two are the guardians of the world. When fear and shame break down, we have chaos, anarchy, and we've seen it in this little globe of ours in this lifetime. We are, quite rightly, afraid to be punished if we do too badly. So we keep ourselves somewhere in the middle. Now sometimes that fear breaks down. And we are ashamed to be shown up as evildoers. Sometimes that too breaks down. Our prisons are full of those people. And in our own experience, we um, can surely find instances when we behaved in a manner which we were later ashamed of. It's quite all right. Shame is a guardian. It guards us from doing evil, but it doesn't always work. And it isn't always noticeable enough. Now, obviously, we would be ashamed to go outside of our house with a dirty face. If we are aware of that, we run right back in and wash it off. We're often not ashamed to go outside of our house with some very unwholesome thoughts. Disliking, rejecting, angry, furious, self-centered, whatever it may be. We don't run inside and wash it off. So shame has a very profitable effect on us. And because we all have a conscience, which is what fear and shame really are, we keep ourselves somewhere in the middle of all this 
good and evil. We can be tempted easily enough. And not only that, we can be easily influenced. Until the time when we have seen for ourselves at least some glimpses of absolute truth and have gained a foothold on the path to Nibbana through personal experience, we are constantly in danger. This is something we need to accept about ourselves. It's no cause for despair. It's no cause for unhappiness. On the contrary, it is an acceptance of a reality which makes it so much easier to practice. When we are willing to see things as they really are, we don't have so much resistance. We don't have so much pride about ourselves. We don't have so much ideas of perfectionism. And because of that, much less tension. To be perfect is just not in the cards for us at this time. Any ordinary human being would have a great deal of difficulty trying to live up to any expectation of perfection. So with shame and fear, as the guardians of the world, as the Buddha said, which we can translate into our conscience, we usually do not fall into terribly evil states because we are listening to that inner voice. But also, because of our inbred and inbuilt instincts and impulses, we do not go in the direction of great growth very easily unless we're prodded a bit. Now that too, of course, there are exceptions to that but they are few and far between most people need a bit of a prod behind them and this prod is usually not so easy to give oneself it's much easier if we have a good friend someone who actually is walking along the same pathway and maybe is a few steps ahead If not that, at least on the same level. So that we have not only communication, but support for what we're doing. The support system that refrains, helps us to refrain from evil and at the same time also encourages the good. So someone who encourages us to go to a meditation course and encourages us to keep the precepts and encourages us to study and learn more about the spiritual path is a good friend. 
This is the same that we can do for others. The more of a good friend we become, the easier it is to find a good friend. So this encouragement is one of the qualities of a good friend. One who knows what's good and one who knows where we could fall into evil ways and so helps us to abstain and helps us to cultivate and develop. The Buddha said further that a good friend is someone who helps us to overcome doubt. Doubt in what is really important. Who helps us to find some confidence in a spiritual path and also confidence in ourselves. Now there are some, strangely enough, some spiritual teachings that I have read about and heard about who sound very um, profound and seem to teach very similar to what the Buddha taught. But their endeavors to denigrate a person in order to reduce their ego illusion. Buddha said that doesn't work. We've got to get rid of our ego illusion on our own. It's useless to try to make a person feel ridiculous or small and incapable. On the contrary, a good friend helps us to gain confidence. Now that doesn't mean flattery. Flattery is usually connected with dishonesty. It's um, hypocritical. It has nothing to do with that. It's a support system for self-confidence where we can feel that we're capable of handling whatever it is that we're confronted with. Now, that's a good friend. So overcoming doubt and gaining confidence. But at the same time and by the same token, the gaining of confidence also applies to the spiritual master that one is concerned with. Now here we are concerned with the Buddha. So the gaining of confidence in oneself, in the spiritual master, would result from the confidence that the good friend has him or herself. It's very catching. We are easily influenced. But not only that. If you remember your lessons in Sunday school, you might remember the words, and first there was the word. Words are actualities. They have power behind them. They can have evil power if there's evil intent. And that has been often demonstrated. 
but they can have also the power for the good. And not only because there's a good intent, but because there is the solidity of confidence, of having no doubt, of having absolute certainty, that puts power behind the word. One of the demonstrations of that was the fact that when the Buddha was alive and spoke, people were able to become enlightened by listening to one discourse. This is the eighth one in this series. (laughs) But this is not the Buddha. That's a problem. (laughs) But the power of the word is strong. And if we have a friend, or if we are a friend, obviously we talk to each other. That's the whole secret of communication. may not be all of communication. In fact, it isn't all of communication, but it's a great part of communication, our talking to each other. So there's a lot of power behind that. So if we, as a good friend, have gained confidence in something which is going beyond the ordinary daily activity and the ordinary daily consciousness, then that may be transmittable. That's what we usually call very often in, not in this tradition, but in the Tibetan tradition, the transmission. The transmission very often from a living master. It's nothing but the power of the word. We don't use that expression, but the same thing. So we have that as another quality, the overcoming of doubt and the gaining of confidence. Now another quality of a good friend is the ability to impart something new, something that we haven't heard yet something which arouses our interest and makes us think along new lines where our mind becomes stimulated into trying to understand something which hadn't occurred to us yet. In other words, this is the aspect of a wise person who have experiences that they have understood and are able to impart. Wisdom, of course, also has grades, and we don't have to aspire to be a perfectly wise person, but we can aspire to be wise enough to give good counsel, at least consider all aspects. So if we talk to our friends and if we want to be a good friend, part of it is to be able to bring something new into our mind-to-mind relationship. And also, co-joined with that, is the ability to explain that what one has learned. 
Now that applies very much to spiritual teaching. In many traditions, in this one also, one learns a fair few things by heart, which is extremely helpful for remembering. One cannot possibly remember all the fives and sixes and fours and tens if one hasn't learned it by heart. But learning it by heart solely and nothing else is not enough. If one then repeats it, one becomes a parrot. One repeats that which one has learned just by rote. So that what one has learned needs to be explained. And a good friend should be able to explain things one has heard. Now, that may not always concern spiritual teachings. We may hear something in, uh, at college, or we may have a conversation with someone and hear something, or we may read something in a, in a book or in a, even in a magazine. A good friend should have enough insight to be able to explain that in a manner and in a form which has value. Now, this all boils down to noble conversations, to have conversations which are beneficial, uplifting, and enlightening. The word is not to be confused with enlightenment, but just to bring us a little more light into the mind. Another aspect is that a good friend should be able to help us correct our views. Now, the Buddha gave a discourse called the Net of Views, the Brahmajala Sutta, which is the first sutta of the Digha Nikaya, the long collection. It's called long collection because the discourses are long. And this Brahmajala Sutta lists 62 viewpoints, which are like a heading, each one's a heading, for all the views that we could possibly have. And then at the end of the discourse, after the Buddha has listed them all, he says, and all of them are wrong. <laughs> now, the reason for them all being wrong is the fact that we see them from the standpoint of our ego delusion. They are discolored by it. They are a personal viewpoint. They are not relatively wrong. They are only absolutely wrong. In the absolute sense, they can't be right because there's nobody there to have a viewpoint. So our viewpoints, all of them, are suspect, each one. Some of them less than others, certainly. But whatever our viewpoints are, we need to take them with a grain of salt because they are personal and not universal. And this is a way to check them. If we say or think something that has universal application and is true for every living being, it's not a viewpoint anymore. 
its wisdom. But as soon as it only has application to a personal situation, then it's a viewpoint. Now, obviously, we have to deal with viewpoints in this life because we deal with personal situations. But they do not usually solve any problems. Mostly, they create more problems. So, viewpoints are to be taken carefully and not accepted wholeheartedly. Sometimes we can't avoid them. That's quite true. But we must watch out that they are individual rather than universal. And therefore, when we realize that they are individual, we could add to our statement, that's only my own personal viewpoint. And if we do that, at least we have had an understanding of what it means. Now, a good friend is supposed to help us with seeing the difference between universal and individual so that our viewpoints become more of a totality aspect where we're not so much concerned with our own personal achievements, or losses, not so much concerned with our wishes, our own personal wishes and dislikes, but see it all more in the um, context of a whole universal existence, of which we are part and in which we are taking part, and where we have a right to be because of having been born within it. So this is another quality of a good friend, that he has a little wider view. Another quality of a good friend is to help us keep the moral precepts in order. So if we're quite willing not to take drugs or alcohol, a good friend would support that rather than saying, oh, don't be such a sport. come on, one won't hurt you. That's not a good friend. So that kind of thing is an example only for keeping virtue in order. Now, if you remember, I explained virtue also in other terms, namely in the terms of the ten virtues, the ten paramis, and all of that can be supported by a good friend. To have the ability to do that by being a good friend in that manner, one has to have to practice this oneself. It's useless to say to somebody, don't you drink any alcohol, it's not good for you, and then sit there sipping wine or champagne or beer or whatever it may be. It's neither is it going to be effective nor is it going to be um, trustworthy. So if we want to be a good friend, we also have to be the example for it. The example for the simple reason that we're practicing it. 
Now, when we're practicing it, obviously, that then becomes a model. As however much we can do. Some of these things may be quite easy for us to do. Others may be beyond our capacity at this moment. It's quite all right. Whatever we can do. It isn't the accomplishment that counts. It's the effort that we put in the right direction. One of the <coughs> steps on the Noble Eightfold Path is right effort. <coughs> None of the steps is called right accomplishment. So right effort is what counts. We do have that very much ingrained in our Western society, the achievement syndrome. And this achievement syndrome also creates a great deal of tension, stress, and strain because we don't know what achievement is actually the utmost, the epitome of achievements. There's always another one. Get one degree, you can get another one. Make the first million, you can make a second one. Have uh, one relationship, well, you could have ten, couldn't you? There's no end to these achievements. So it isn't that at all that where, where the effort is being put, but just making the right kind of effort. That's what counts. So if we have a, if we want to be a good friend and have a good friend, we need to maybe jointly make the effort of letting go. Letting go of those things which are sensual contact, sensual gratifications, and put our attention more and more on the spiritual gratification. Because we can call it that. Because if you remember, I mentioned already once today that the Buddha said in one of his discourses in the Middle End sayings that the, for instance, the meditative absorptions are a pleasure that I will allow myself. So there is also a gratification available. And if we leave one behind, the one that has essential gratification, obviously we need a substitute. And that is a substitute. It's certainly not the end of the path. It's a means and it's a substitute. And that kind of encouragement also creates a kind of conversation that will bring joy to the heart. And this is also one of the qualities of a good friend. That our togetherness with a good friend, our conversations, our whole relationship brings joy, that we feel elevated by that togetherness. If we have a friendship or a connection with someone where we feel dragged down, heavy, unhappy, it's best to stop. 
without blaming the other person. Obviously, we are, we are tempted to blame the other person. I mean, they're such a misery, they make us miserable. But that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to protect oneself from that being dragged down into a lower attitude and consciousness, which is heavy and unpleasant. <coughs> and with that protection, to realize that we are not yet able to uplift that other person. Now, often, particularly women, have that idea that they're going to reform this miserable character and he's going to be an absolute epitome of virtue after they've been together with him. I know, we've tried. It's not the way it works. If we have any kind of ability as a good friend, we also have the duty to protect ourselves. And that should be done without any recriminations, without any dislike, with the full understanding that my powers and my abilities are not sufficient to bring that other person to a level of consciousness which will be protective of my own happiness. In other words, I'm just not advanced enough. That's fine. That doesn't mean one couldn't try, but one needs enough wisdom to know when to stop trying. To be a good friend to another or to have a good friend means upliftment. Means that the mind has an upliftment in it and becomes joyful. It's a joy to be with that other person. Not necessarily always when talking to each other, but even just being with each other. It's an interesting um, interesting aspect of communication which I was told by a woman who gives communication courses in Australia which in itself is already an, a great indication of where we're at we need to learn to communicate with each other she told me that it has been proven through experiments that active verbal communication is 7% seven seven of the whole of the communication. The other 93% are other than verbal. Body language, facial expression, tone of voice, and particularly the feeling behind the words. This is, an, I think, a very interesting aspect of our whole relationship with each other because of the fact that it isn't just the word. It's the whole person behind the word which makes a difference. So if we are 
a good friend and want to learn to be a really good friend, then it isn't just what we say, it's how we say it. Another thing mentioned by the Buddha for a good friend is to help the other one to be generous, to support generosity. Generosity was praised by the Buddha many times. I've already talked about it to you. It is mentioned so often and in so many different discourses. And he gave a very exact guideline how to spend one's money. It's interesting because of the fact that as a great spiritual master, one of the greatest of humanity, he went into the most minute detail of people's lives. He said, you use one-third of your income for supporting yourself and your family. You use one-third to put away for repairs and a rainy day. And the other third you give away. Now, with that other third to give away, as I've already mentioned, find the right place to give it to not always easy in our very proliferated society that we have today where there are so many more human beings on this same globe than there were two and a half thousand years ago we have so many more choices and so many more opportunities to do the wrong thing but we might even have more opportunities also to do the right thing who knows it's up to our own discrimination. So the support system of being generous are not only, of course, with one's income. To open one's heart to others. So if there is a relationship between two people as good friends, it is not the Buddha's idea that they should now remove themselves from the rest of the world and live in their own little nuclear apartment and let the rest of the world go by. That wasn't the idea at all. On the contrary, that particular relationship could be and should be a seedbed for being a good friend to many going out of oneself with one's heart to others. If one has a, has a good friend and one knows the feeling towards that person, then one can duplicate that to others. And this is the advice the Buddha gave, not to retreat and retire from the world because the world's no good and the world's no use, but to give to it as much as we can. Naturally, retreating is also necessary at times to do some intensive meditation, but only as a training method. 
Another aspect which the Buddha mentions in those qualities of a good friend are co-joined, they're mentioned as two, insight and wisdom. Now, obviously, these two are necessary uh, foundations in order to have the ability to present something new, to explain that what has been heard, uh, to help another person. So if insight and wisdom are qualities of a good friend, it's up to us to gain some of that, but it's also up to us to have enough understanding to know where we can find that insight and wisdom in others. Obviously, there will be people in our lives whom we know and whom we have befriended who may not live up to these standards. Certainly, we do not dislike them. We do not um, have any kind of negativity in our mind about them. We can try to be their good friend. However, if our interests and their interests no longer come together, such friendships fall apart by themselves. There's nothing we need to do about it. The lack of common interest just makes it fall apart naturally. And therefore, it also comes naturally that we come together with those people who have the same interests as we have. And that's why it's also important to deliberately search out such people who have the same interest. So if our interest is on a spiritual path, on the development of heart and mind, it is necessary to search out such places, such people to be. Is something that we can be very um, attentive to when we remember that speech is something that we use constantly other than in a silent meditation course. Speech is um, very often a cause for friendship and other times a cause for enmity. So if we want to learn to be a good friend, we can guard our speech in such a way that it will be helpful to this friendship. Insight and wisdom are something that will have to arise in us as we practice. And as we practice more and more, we will find more and more of that in our conversations also, because it's the only thing that's really interesting. The rest of the stuff that the world talks about isn't really fascinating enough. The Buddha mentioned many types of conversations which are useless. 
with due respects to the editors of Time, everything that's written in Time magazine. All of these topics are useless. They do not produce inside wisdom. They could produce disquiet, restlessness, worry, fear, and all the rest of it. Sometimes they produce even something else, a superiority feelings. Look how these people are conducting their lives. Dreadful, isn't it? I can do better than that. I don't think I need to go into any of the details that the Buddha mentioned because the words he used are not exactly the same words we use now. Kings, ministers, robbers, and so forth. War and the rest of it. Women to talk about men, men to talk about women, and so on. All useless types of conversations. The conversations which are helpful to us are those that give us a greater upliftment, an elevated feeling, a feeling of having gained access to something that can bring peace, harmony, something that is um, very worthwhile, valuable. That kind of feeling comes from a noble conversation. So when we are, when we find ourselves in situations where the conversations are less than noble, and most people do find themselves in such situations, then we could try to be the catalyst to change the topic. It doesn't always work naturally, but it does sometimes. And at least our good intention has made good karma for us. It's a very interesting and quite energy-consuming matter to constantly watch oneself until the time when it has become so habitual that it no longer seems to be a chore. In the beginning, it has to have behind it the understanding that unless we do we are constantly in danger. The Buddha compared us to children who are playing in a house on fire and don't know enough to jump out because we don't want to leave our toys behind. Everybody's got their own toys at home. And if it isn't something material, it might be other people, it might be our own mind and body. So the house on fire is worldly existence. It's always dangerous. Not because we can die. We'll be reborn anyway. It doesn't matter. But because we are always on the point of <coughs> being tempted into some state of 
negativity, whether it's greed or hate. And that's the danger that we live in. And that's the house on fire. And because we've got an investment in this house, and we've got all these things which are mine, and all these people which are supposedly mine, and this body and mind which is supposedly mine, we don't want to step out. We just want to get that house in order. And many, many people cannot accept the fact that that house cannot be put in order. Fear and shame, noble friends and noble conversations, and one other thing, guarding one's sense doors. Guarding the sense doors means that we let go of a bit of our curiosity. The world is full of proliferation. In Pali, that's papancha. I think the word itself already denotes what's, what it means. It's full of diversity. Even nature is full of diversity. I was told one time by a nurseryman that there are 325 different kinds of begonias. In those days I was interested in begonias. There are almost 400 different kinds of eucalypt trees. That's only two species. There are thousands of species of the uh, of trees and flowers and bushes and of animals. The nature itself proliferates. We can just take a look at the people in this room. Nobody looks like anybody else. Nature proliferates. Different hair colors, different eyes, different shapes, different sizes, different noses, and so on and so on. Nobody looks alike. If you ever meet anybody who looks like somebody else, you get very surprised and probably run up, run up to them and say, well, you know, you look like my gra- grandmother or something like that. Very interesting. But usually you don't ever find anybody who looks like anybody. This proliferation in nature is also in our mind because we are a part of nature, even though we might not keep that bargain, but we are. And this proliferation in our mind has then as its result that we want to go out and see more, hear more, taste more, touch more, smell more, and think more. Nowadays, there are hundreds of different study items at the universities, things I've never heard of in my life. I don't even know what they're talking about. Hundreds of possibilities to get a degree. I think, if I remember rightly, in 1942... At Glasgow University, there were 10 majors which you could choose from. 
Now, if you've had anything to do with the university lately, you know that today that would be ridiculous. We proliferate and proliferate and proliferate, more and more and more. And therefore, we are constantly in the business of seeing something new, hearing something new. The whole tourist industry is based on it. And there are quite a number of countries who live on the tourist industry. Without it, they'd be totally bankrupt. They live on proliferation. And this is our natural way of being. So if we want to really grow spiritually, we need to recognize that in ourselves. That doesn't mean that we can never see something new again. But, or hear something new again. Or look at some sight that we'd like to see. But it means that we have become aware of the fact that it's nothing but a diversion. That it's a side trip. And really has no intrinsic value in itself. Guarding the sense doors means that we are aware, aware of putting limits on our sense contacts. Voluntary limits, which is part of renunciation. These voluntary limits are up to each person, whatever it is that they want to do. They work much better when they're voluntary. They don't work very well when they're imposed. But when they're voluntary, they can bring a great deal of inner strength because of the fact that this energy which proliferates and goes out there is kept in check and intact in one place. And that inner strength has no equal. And we can also call this thing self-discipline. Buddha calls it guarding the sense doors. It has to do with also with the mind being curious. In German, the word for curiosity is Neugierde, which literally translated means Greed for the new. Very good word. That's exactly what it is. And we all have it, but we don't become aware of it. And the only difference between the practice of the spiritual path and the non-practice is that we eventually know what we're doing and then voluntarily desist from it because we can see it doesn't bring anything. So we have actually four aspects of our practice which has to do with guarding ourselves and growing in the direction of spirituality of which the uh, 
pride of place is taken by the good friend, which includes then the noble conversations, shame and fear, and guarding our sense doors. These are pathways for purification. And this whole discourse, which I'm talking about, is a pathway of purification. Enough for this evening. If you like to ask some questions, please do so. evil <laughs> for instance Hitler one of the greatest orators ever total evil was able to sway the masses I heard him myself I mean he wasn't able to sway me because he was trying to uh, el eliminate me but uh, <laughs> power of evil in the word is uh, enormous. And one of the strange things about humanity has always been how much easier it is to follow the evil than it is to follow the good. It really takes a great deal of inner strength. So the power of the word lies in the conviction and the feeling behind it. It's not the word. I mean, you can say, for instance, you can say to somebody, you are an idiot, okay? And that person gets very angry at you, okay? A very terrible thing to say, you know. It never speaks to you again. And you can say to a person, you're an idiot. And that person knows that you really mean well, that you think that whatever you did was for your own detriment. It's the same words. Enormous power in the word. And it can be so powerful, as the Buddha's words were, that it can bring enlightenment. See, the word can go in. It can stay out here, sure, but it can go in. And if it goes in, it can actually create a change. This is what must have happened in the Buddha's time. You have another any other question about that? No. Okay. Yes. When you said power of the words, uh, that reminds me of do you see a relationship? Like the Hindus talk about bhakti path. And they're written by the teacher. Uh with the devotion to the teacher, yes. Yes, through the transmission, yes. Yes, that's right. Anything else? Yes.
Certainly. Uh, no, not necessarily. If, for instance, as a cook or a gardener, if one um, does it for the benefit of those that one cooks for or that one gardens for the beauty so that others may enjoy, uh, it's a service which is giving, certainly. Um, with music, there is a um, possibility of being so so attached to it and involved in it that other aspects of life may not be seen. But if it's done, again, in the same um, manner as a, to give others some happiness, certainly it's a service. Well, it's a pleasure of creation, isn't it? Yes. And in that creation, do you try also to um, express your own um, highest understanding? Certainly. That can be done with painting, that can be done with the word, that is the same thing. That's a visualized word. It's exactly the same. There's a monk in Sri Lanka who's a Swiss, um, and he's been there for what, about 20 years. And before he became a monk, he was a famous painter in Switzerland. His uh, paintings are actually exhibited in France and some of them are hanging in the in the National Gallery there in the Louvre, I think. And But he's never given out his name, <laughs> who he was before he became a monk. But as he became a monk, he um, then slowly again started painting again. And what he does, and he has recently sent me one, um, his own understanding of the Dhamma he puts in paintings. He, he doesn't write any books or anything like that. He doesn't uh, teach by words, but he puts it in the paintings. And then he gives them out to people that he likes to give something to. So uh, it is another, it's, it's, a, it's a word come into the form. So, so it's communication. Yeah. Yes, certainly. Hmm. You mean that there is no Sangha? Yeah. Yeah, but you see also the thing is that we are coming away from the Buddha's time more and more and everything deteriorates more and more. It's getting worse and worse. So um, uh, it was easy in those days to establish a Sangha apparently because the uh, um, upper crust became Sangha. 
and if we look into the um, nuns' order in the <laughs> in the East, what we see is the exact opposite. So um, very little, very little hope there. And the West. I don't know. Shall I say the truth? I've given up on a, on, on a sangha in the West. <laughs> I can't see it. Well, maybe, you know, maybe it's going to happen. I don't know. But uh, it's a difficult undertaking. Because, you see, we are living in a time of technology. I, I have noticed this, and it's a well-known fact, that there are certain times in humanity's um, uh, development. Now, there was a time of the great painters. They all seem to have come at the same time. Um, Rubens and Rembrandt and Raphael and these people were at the same time. Then we had a time of um, a great spiritual teachers. The Buddha had a number of contemporaries who were great spiritual teachers. Um, most famous, Mahavira, the head of the Jain order, which is still in existence. And uh, in the Middle Ages, we had great Christian mystics. The books are still available. Teresa de Villa, Francis de Osuna, Meister Eckhart, um, many more, uh, John of the Cross, all at the same time. And what do we have today? We've got the spacemen going to the moon. Uh, I think Einstein was probably the forerunner of the whole business. And now we have great physicists and uh, we have uh, great new technology which uh, 50 years ago wasn't even dreamt about. Hmm? The computers. Yeah. I mean, nobody would... The word didn't even exist. The word computer didn't exist. So this is our time. And in a time where that is... Oh, oh, the computer is overtaking, isn't it? It's, uh, it's uh, you know, without a computer, nobody seems to be able to do any job anymore. So what does a monk and a nun have to do with in, in those times? I think it's the age of the lay person who is trying to do what is traditionally the work of monks and nuns. No, I don't even think that. A, a few, yes, a few, certainly. I have, a, I have a, a few, but not as a rule, no. As a rule, I would say that we are getting away, f getting away from it more and more. You see, the prophecy is this. The Buddha said this one himself. He said that the teaching of the Dhamma will last 5,000 years from the time of his Parinibbana, which is the time of his death, and then the words, Anicca Dukkanatta, will not be heard again until the next Buddha arises, which will be eons away. Whatever eons are. I'm sorry, I don't know what eons are, but it's a long time, isn't it? <laughs> and, um, and then there's a prophecy which can be found in the sub-commentaries. If anybody takes the trouble to read those, it can be found there. And in it, it says that within those 5,000 years, right in the middle of those 5,000 years, there will be a 100 years in which the Dhamma will take a great upswing 
and will reach far more people than ever before. And then after the 100 years are over, it will all deteriorate again. And at this point in time, we are in the 32nd year, I believe, or maybe the 33rd year, it's almost Vesak, uh, 33rd year of these 100 years. So we see an upsurge and an upswing where people are more and more interested. They come to the teachings, they want to hear it, and some of them actually do it. Believe it or not, they actually do it. Um, And they actually have great results. Um, But of course, it's a minority. It's uh, naturally. I mean, aren't we a minority? I mean, look at this uh, number of people sitting here. How many more are not sitting here? Okay? So... Uh, there are people who are doing it, and it's, um, yes, it's lay people, but, I mean, there are some monks that are doing it, and uh, obviously there must be some nuns that are doing it. Uh, it's always a very small number, very small number. And to have a sangha in the West where the computer is actually the master of the situation at this point in time would probably be difficult. I don't think it's impossible, but it's difficult. And I think there's an interest in it, but it's an academic interest, I'm afraid. I don't know. I mean, I don't come around here so often. Yes? It's very interesting. Nobody's ever talked to me about such things via the computer. Why are they leaving me out? (laughs) (laughs) I feel quite uh, left out. (laughs) I don't know how to operate those things. Yes, well, it is, we have technological geniuses at this time, and we've had other kinds of geniuses at other times. So, um, and it seems to have, you see, this is why this happens, we're very easily influenced. And uh, so we have um, um, not just one genius in one particular field, but quite a number. And so today it's that kind of endeavor. I guess we're an anachronism, well, anyway. <laughs> Doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm old enough to be it. <laughs> yes? Don't you have a, a Buddha monk in uh, Germany and Australia? How is that going? How's that? Very well. It is your plan. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a computer. Did we you say it's very well or not very well? Very well, excellently very well going, but uh, it doesn't have nuns and monks. I'm it. Yeah. In Germany, there isn't a single Western monk or nun in my tradition except myself. 60 million people in West Germany. Not one single 
monk or nun in the Theravadan tradition from the West of the West, except me. Hmm? Sorry? Three. Theravadan. Westerners. Yes. In Australia, there are two, three, four, five, six, I'm not sure, five monks, Western monks of this tradition and one other nun besides myself. Now, England has quite a spade of them, yes. But then you see England is not in Europe. It's across the channel. (laughs) (laughs) They don't think they're in Europe. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I'm it. <laughs> no, um, at this point in time in my life, I'm uh, responsible to the, more or less, I would say, this, responsible to the people I teach and responsible to the people that support me. That's about it. We don't, uh, we don't have a, a, a hierarchy as such, we certainly have a hierarchy, but uh, it's mostly amongst the monks. We are sort of um, half in and half out. (laughs) Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Forgive yourself for any mistakes you may have made in the past that you remember now and even those that you don't remember. Any difficulties which you were not able to overcome Let this forgiveness arise in you and couple it with compassion for yourself. Let this pervade you and surround you. Forgive yourself for any thoughts of dislike and rejection that you may have had. Have compassion for that difficulty.
Let your forgiveness reach out to everyone here. Help them to forgive themselves. And fill them with your compassion for any difficulties that anyone has not been able to overcome. Forgive your parents for any mistakes you think they have made. Help them to forgive themselves. Fill them with your compassion for their difficulties. Forgive those people who are nearest and dearest to you for any mistakes that you think they have made. Fill them with your compassion for all the difficulties they have not yet overcome. Think of all your friends. Fill them with your forgiveness for anything that you think may have been wrong in their lives. Help them to forgive themselves. Fill them with your compassion.
think of the people you work with or those you see quite often. Forgive them for anything that you may have seen or surmised that was wrong in their lives. Fill them with compassion for all the difficulties that they endure. Think of anyone with whom you may have had difficulties. Forgive that person completely. Recognize that he or she would have had great dukkha to behave wrongly. Fill him or her with compassion. Think of all the things, situations, and happenings in the world that you consider wrong, unwholesome. Forgive all the people who are concerned and instrumental in them. Forgive these people for the mistakes. Fill them with your compassion, knowing that they have dukkha, just like everybody else, and ignorance, like all of us.
Now put your attention back on yourself. Feel the easing of the burden of having let go of blame, which is heavy. and obstructive. Feel how light it is when there's forgiveness and acceptance and compassion. Enjoy the lightness within. The relief and release. the feeling of being safe and secure. Fill and surround yourself with these feelings. May people everywhere be forgiving to each other. 